I'm a passionate region woman because I believe that your geography is not an obstacle to your success. I'm a passionate regional woman because to me, regional WA is real and raw. My work gives me the opportunity to travel all over this incredible state and to meet the most amazing people for which I'm incredibly grateful. It's all those personalities that make up our diverse communities. It's the people that make here a vibrant place to live. I believe regional communities cannot achieve economic prosperity without talented regional women living in rural Australia. It's what makes regional WA the best place to live and love. And that's why I'm a passionate regional woman. Welcome to the Triple R Network podcast series by Generation Ag. We're your hosts, Kayla Evans and Lavinia Ware. And we discuss different things that are around the rural, remote and regional women's network of Western Australia. Kayla, how are you going? It's feeling a bit bizarre being back uh, here again. It's, it's like been it, a while. It has been a while and it's like being in the bloody twilight zone. We're in, um, we're in a time of the year, I think, where everyone just feels exhausted (laughs) and more so this year than every other year because no one's really gotten a big break to go away this year I think everyone's really feeling it you know we're weeks away from harvest we're weeks away from summer and Christmas and it's it's a big time of year and not being able to travel yeah yeah there's so much that is affecting regional Western Australia this time of year yeah it's funny because you you sit and you go oh my gosh why am I so exhausted and then you look at your leave balance and realize you haven't taken a day's leave all year and go oh yeah that's that makes sense that makes sense why I feel exhausted <laughs> longer summer holiday for you then hope so we'll see <laughs> so if you're new listening to this podcast the regional remote and rural women's network is a place where the triple r women can belong meet like-minded women develop ideas connections and become leaders in their communities as well as being a voice on the ground for issues that impact women so I guess we're talking a lot about events and when this episode goes live it's the day of the triple r network sundowner which is in celebration of international women's day which is the day that this episode goes live so happy international rural women's day kayla yeah happy international rural women's day and happy international rural women's day to all of you beautiful women and men if you're listening as well no matter where you are um yeah what a great day to celebrate what a great day for this episode to come out what a great day full of events and connection and and, uh activities all over the place yeah there's a lot of amazing things happening today uh obviously we have our um, virtual event there's the triple r sundowner um there's the rural women's day which is a a collective over in the east coast um, based out of victoria and they've released a magazine um jackie elliott she is the one that spearheads that Mm. Uh, there is a variety of other stuff i know that the uh, farm weekly have done a special little segment in that 
a magazine this week, so pick that up. There's lots happening. It's it's really nice to finally see that recognition Mm. and I feel like we're really making the most of this lovely holiday or for it's not really a holiday, but this day of recognition really. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, high time and I think every year the um, events on um, International Rural Women's Day get better and better and so it's really cool to see uh, what's coming up on the calendar. Absolutely. So with that, each week we have our Woman of the Week segment. So Kayla, tell us a little bit about the Woman of the Week. Well, this week, uh, our Woman of the Week isn't a woman per se. It is another Rural Women's Network and that is the Rural Women's Network over in New South Wales, which is uh, run in association with the Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales. And today, so if you're listening to this on the 15th of October, they are launching their Bee Treat reset sessions for rural women uh, and that is B-treat not retreat like we all like to take which we all wish we were taking but they are developing some immersive and free online events that tap into the collective wisdom of rural women's experts and support you to reset uh, if you're a rural woman who is looking for some inspiration motivation reminders that you aren't alone the chance to laugh write and find new ways to recover heal and reset then go and join them they're launching free online seminars which I think is great and they're running right through from the 15th of October this year until the 24th of November this year as well so get on that there's some really cool there's some really cool topics like how do I say no when everyone needs me I think that's a lesson we all need I don't know about you (laughs) I'm looking at someone here (laughs) no one in particular yeah um they're doing another topic called beyond self-care laughter is the best medicine and you can't pour from an empty cup and so it all just sounds really really good really good stuff that we need this time of year and it's great to support those other real rural women's networks in other states as well because I know a lot of them listen to this and support this podcast yeah for sure and we also have an amazing guest we are you know we're almost at the end of this amazing series so Mm. Kayla tell us who is today's guest yeah today's guest is the amazing Tress Wormsley and I was really excited to chat down and talk to her uh sit down look I can't even finish my sentences today I'm exhausted (laughs) uh sit down and talk to her uh so Tress has actually um been involved with the Grain Industry Association of WA for quite some time and um uh, if you don't know me at all, I, I've been employed with the Grain Industry Association or GIWA for the last two and a half years. So um, known Tress around the circles for a while, but love these podcasts as an opportunity just to really peel back the curtain on their personality and their career and what really fires them up. And um, Tress has just been an incredible advocate and and more than just an advocate. She's been in the trenches as a, as a rural woman in agribusiness for her whole entire life she grew up on a farm in northern um, right through to heading up one of the largest seed breeding operations in australia so yeah really really great chat with her and i look forward to sharing that with you guys yeah can't wait let's get into it now Tress Wormsley was appointed as the Intergrain CEO in August of 2012. Having joined the business at its inception, Tress has played an integral role in governance, developing operating systems and building the company's commercial platform. Tress has over 15 years of agribusiness experience, along the way gaining a wealth of knowledge in commercial plant breeding operations with a strong understanding of the technical drivers required for success in the grain industry. 
Prior to working at Intergrain, Tress spent over 10 years with DAFWA in a variety of roles, including Grains Commercialisation Officer and Top Crop State Coordinator. Tress has also been a member of an, a number of industry boards and organisations and is very passionate about creating pathways for women into the agriculture industry. In 2015, Tress was awarded the RIRDC Western Australian Rural Woman of the Year. Here's Tress. Good morning, Tress, and welcome to the Triple R Network podcast by Generation Ag. Thank you for sitting with me this morning. We're excited to have you on because um, you're a part of the Grain Industry Association WA, which, of course, I am an employee of. So I'm excited to have this chat to you um, and get to know you a bit better. We start all of our Triple R Network podcast episodes the same way, and that is to ask... Tell us a bit about yourself. Start at the beginning. Let's get to know you. So right back at the beginning, uh, I grew up on a farm situated uh, just um, near Northern, so in a little place called Wongamine. And I was uh, the typical little girl that used to follow her dad around (laughs) absolutely everywhere. So I had an older brother, but he didn't really have much interest in the farm. So I was the farm girl that literally went everywhere with my dad. (laughs) Is it just you and your brother? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yep. And uh, the family farm, talk to us a bit about what that was. Yeah, so uh, I went to school in Northam and then uh, mum and dad decided to sell the family farm uh, when I was in high school. So mm. for high school, I went away to school and boarded at St Mary's Anglican Girls' School, which mm. was probably one of the first big impacting, life-changing mm-hmm. events for me. And uh, mum and dad then stayed in Northern uh, for quite a long time. And so have a strong affiliation, I suppose, with the community of Northern. Mm-hmm. Why do you say um, going to St Mary's was a, a life-changing point for you? So for me, I'd come off basically uh, being in primary school where we would catch the school bus to school in the morning and then at home. Mm-hmm. And it was quite, I suppose, an isolating experience. Mum mm-hmm. and dad did a fantastic job of basically you know shipping us into town every weekend to play whatever sport we wanted to do or do music lessons and things like that but the great thing about being at a boarding school was you just had this amazing array of different activities that you could sign up to Mm -hmm. and so I think I literally just filled every moment uh particularly in the earlier years um, of being able to, you know, play tennis, do music lessons, do volleyball, do swimming. Mm -hmm. And then I became, I suppose, more attracted to some of the more adventurous things. So (laughs) St Mary's uh, was one of the first schools to actually offer scuba diving. And so... Uh, some of the great things that we did was, you know, we went to Papua New Guinea on a scuba diving expedition. We went to Abrolhos Islands. And so we've got all, I've got all these fantastic memories. And we did uh, the Duke of Edinburgh. And so, you know, we rode from our bikes from uh, Manjimup to Warpole, one, yeah. you know, and went camping and, and stayed at Shannon River and places like that. So, yeah. and then for me, probably in terms of the schooling. It was just a school that taught me a philosophy that I've kept with me all of my life, and that is if you have the right can-do attitude, Mm. you'll be able to achieve whatever it is that you want to do. Mm. You might have to go around it in a particular way and 
and approach it from you know the left field not the right door so but for me it's all about attitude that's so amazing uh it's really interesting to hear you say that because I went to an Anglican all girls school as well for high school and I I feel exactly the same way about the opportunities and those sorts of things coming from a small community and and moving into a larger boarding school situation which can be really intimidating but if you approach it with the right attitude and, and and you go into it wanting to get a lot out of it I think it offers really great opportunities to young women yeah and I mean it had such a positive impact that I've spoken so positively about my experience Mm. at boarding school that my daughter has uh, I suppose the courage now going from a city life to next year to go and study at Narragin Agriculture College Mm -hmm. and so and you know in her interview they said are you worried about boarding and she said no my mum's told me so many positive things about boarding school yeah that's so cool Talk us through your career now. You finish up at St. Mary's. What happens next? Well, uh, it wasn't um, a straight path to agriculture. So uh, all the way through uh, high school, I was destined to be a mining engineer. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually enrolled in the Kalgoorlie School of Mines. And but in between being the adventure spirit that I had, I decided to go and do a rotary exchange. So I went to Brazil for 12 min- for twelve months. Yeah. And that was another life-changing experience. And one of those was a particular tree-hugging experience <laughs> where I went, I do not want to be a mining engineer. <laughs> so I rang my mum and dad, because we only back then could do these weekly phone calls on Sunday evening. Mm-hmm. So I rang them and I said, I'm not going to the Kalgoorlie School of Mines. And so literally for the next probably four months, every Sunday evening, the conversation went like this. Tress, what university course are you going to do when you come home? And I'd say, I don't know. So by the time I got home, my mum and dad were very, very nervous that I was just going to want to continue my year of partying. (laughs) So they had enrolled me at Murdoch University to do environmental science. I didn't really have any objections, so I thought I will give it a go. Yeah. So I went off to Murdoch and I did environmental science. And in my last year, I had a fantastic lecturer in uh, biology. It was Jenny Davies. And so I decided that I'd do a year of honours. Mm-hmm. And I actually did my project uh, on the first uh, stream macroinvertebrate um, study of the Avon River. Wow. And actually confirmed the presence of seagrass in the northern pool. So it was, again, a great experience, but a long way then from starting, you know, Mm. in the grains industry because I decided I'd then go on and do my PhD and study macroinvertebrates. (laughs) But my boyfriend at the time, who would become my husband, had just got his first job at Three Springs working for the Department of Agriculture. Yeah. And so I thought, well, before I start, you know, the full-time PhD, I'd go and have a holiday in Three Springs. Because <laughs> it's such, a, you know, a normal holiday yeah. destination. Tell, tell everyone who's unfamiliar, um, Three Springs, what does it have to offer as a holiday destination? <laughs> well, at the time, I think the population of Three Springs was 314. <laughs> Uh, but for me, it was a great, again, a great experience of, you know, a country environment. I was quite comfortable with yeah. that. And I had this vision of, well, you know, I was going to play tennis. I was going to do all of these leisurely activities. <laughs> but it was about day three and at about seven o'clock in the morning and there was a knock on the door and uh, I was still in my pyjamas. And this man says to me, you can drive a tractor, right? I said, 
yes, and who are you? He goes, get dressed. I'm back in 15 minutes to pick you up. We really need a tractor driver today to um, sew a pasture trial. I was like, okay, I wonder who this man is. As he walks away, he goes, oh, your boyfriend told me that you could drive the tractor, so this would be okay. So I got dressed. Anyway, one day turned into a career and a life in agriculture. The funny thing is, is I actually didn't get to drive the tractor. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But um, it was the time where we had the lupin disease outbreak of anthracnose. And Mm -hmm. so basically I became a casual employee for the Department of Agriculture. Mm. Then I uh, went on to join them on a more permanent basis. And my university lecturer rang me up a couple of times and eventually she said, you're not coming back, are you? And I said, (laughs) no, because I've actually found found what I love you're hooked that's so cool what has your career sort of looked like since you first walked in the door at, at what was then DAFWA it's been a quite a cool trajectory I would say for, yep. for you so uh, I spent I think nearly three and a half years in Three Springs doing mm-hmm. like a development officer role and was a great uh time in the department because they were really investing in training Mm -hmm. uh, and giving the young generation some fantastic extension and development skills so again I signed up for everything did every possible course that they were actually offering and then at the point my husband and I decided that we were going to get married and so he took a job with the Department of Agriculture back in Perth Mm -hmm. in the new industry section and I took a job in Northam Uh, looking and then went on to manage the top crop uh, program for the state. Yeah, talk to us about the top crop program. Top crop was an exciting time because it was this great recognition of, you know, how we went on farm Mm. and did agronomic skills. We included uh, monitoring programs. But one of my uh, fondest memories was actually starting a program called Top Crop Families. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was about getting uh, women involved in the and giving them the skills to understand agronomic decisions and things like that. Uh, I actually organised and we took a, a group, I think it was eight ladies from particularly UNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a, a tour of the East Coast And so I think we had two babies uh, with us (laughs) under the age of 12 months and eight ladies and we did this fantastic tour of, we went to places like Burship and and, um, Moree I think was the other place. So that was great and it's really nice today because that Top Crop Families has actually turned in uh, to the Partners in Grain program. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you start one little program and it continues a life of its own. Yeah, Yeah. that's so amazing and such an incredible opportunity for young women or women in family situations, farming family situations then. How long ago was Top Crop? So that would have been uh, in the late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. So it's turned into something that's had, you know, legacy now for 20 plus yes. years. That's yeah. so incredible. Yeah. You're the CEO of Intergrain now and you have been since 2012. Uh, eight years at the helm is quite a significant achievement. You've been involved with Intergrain since the beginning, right? Yes. So, uh, and there's probably a little bit of a, uh, of a jump from yeah. how I got from Top Crop to Intergrain fill to in, fill yeah. that in. So uh, I was doing Top Crop and on this one particular day, 
uh, a person in the department, David Barron, walked into my room and he said, Tress, you look a little bit bored with this top crop stuff. I think you need your next stretch uh, <laughs> opportunity. And so he said, what do you know about intellectual property? And I went, mm, <laughs> nothing. And he said, well, we've got this contract that we've not been able to, uh, to sign because no one can agree on all the different uh, equity positions that they're meant to have. And it actually ended up uh, being a job that I again grew to love. And I ended up basically working on that project uh, for a number of years. And it became the Western Malting Barley uh, Council Agreement of how all of the different contributors over the last 10 to 15 years Mm. Uh, had contributed to the barley breeding program. I then went on to manage uh, the grains commercialisation for the Department of Agriculture Mm -hmm. and a couple of fundamental things that I did in there. One was actually uh, work with a small team including the likes of Ross Kingwell uh, was one of the other well-known partners in this project to set up the Endpoint Royalty System Mm. uh, which has basically gone on to had uh, major... Mm -hmm. uh, impact on the grains industry because Mm. it has enabled basically the breeding companies to become commercial platforms Mm. and it's unique to Australia and we get many inquiries from around the world of you know how did we set up the endpoint royalty system. Mm. So my last job as the grains commercialization officer was uh, to work um, with uh, the department to establish Intergrain. And so Mm -hmm. Intergrain formed on the 26th of October 2007 and I was the first employee on the 1st of November 2007. And has Intergrain changed much in terms of what it's been designed to do and achieve over that time? Has it evolved or has it stayed pretty pretty same along the way? The original objective and purpose of Intergrain was a cereal breeding company mm-hmm. and so it has very much stayed true to that and that is our remains our core business. And but we've had the typical, you know, startup mm-hmm. company life. So we started with this, you know, fantastic business plan that was going to you know save the world almost (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know but then we went through you know some harder times and we nearly uh got sold uh to our competitor agt uh we've had different equity partners come and join the business for different Mm -hmm. reasons at different times so but now uh, so I suppose I've seen the business go through the startup. We've been through the downsizing, the hard times, and mm. it's really exciting now uh, to be there with the business as we're going into a really strong growth phase. And you know, it's exciting. We're expanding. Mm. In 2017, uh, we had 15 staff in the business and uh, we've now got 46. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, we've got a, a really strong barley program, a growing wheat program and looking to diversify into other crops. Mm, so amazing. And you are on a rocket ship at the moment, really kicking a lot of goals. What do you think um, you love most about being the CEO of an organisation like Integrain? It's actually the diversity of the role. Uh, literally, I can go to work every day and, you know, some days I will be immersed in the, the marketing side of the business and I'll be chatting with Ash about, you know, 
what are our metrics on social media and what's our next mm. campaign going to be looking like or what what's the next crazy name we're going to name yeah. a variety which is actually quite a hard task yeah or I could be sitting down with our CFO, you know, looking at the 10-year uh, business plan finances. I could be negotiating a contract for, you know, a major R&D agreement with our lawyers. Or I could be working with the scientists and the breeders in the business. Half the time, I don't understand half of the technical space. Uh, but again, that keeps me on my toes, you yeah. know having to learn, you know, all about genomic selection, high-throughput phenotyping. But probably the two spaces that I really love in the business, so one is about, and both of them are about the end-user connection. So mm-hmm. one is I love going on farm. Mm-hmm. So if I have an opportunity to go to a field day or to go visit a grower or to engage with growers, that's what I really yeah. enjoy. And I just love learning about you know, what they're doing on their farms. And I think it's one of the reasons why I actually like being in, in organisations like GIWA yeah. because it actually allows me to connect really regularly. Uh, it's another reason why I absolutely love Twitter because, no joke, I never get out of bed in the morning without checking my <laughs> Twitter account because it just connects me. It grounds me every single day with what's going on nationally. And... But the other one that I really love, and this is, I think, what makes a lot of people jealous about my job, but it's not quite happening at the moment because of COVID, but it's the international travel opportunities. So, you know, last, probably the last two years, I've probably visited 10 countries. Mm. I get to go talk to, you know, some of the world's largest brewers, the flour millers, the bakers. I get to go try uh, new noodles in in Asia and, and things like that. I get to go to Copenhagen to yeah. talk to, you know, Carlsberg. And so it's just, and it's that travel that has, I suppose, it just opens my eyes to everything. Yeah. I think that's the most, for me, coming into, you know, I'm from a farming background, but coming into the grain industry here in WA and, and working in a commodity like grains, you really realise how wide-reaching our agricultural sector is in Australia, but definitely in WA in the grain industry. Is that <clears throat> is that something that you've sort of you still continue to learn every day about how just huge our industry is? How huge it is, but how connected it mm-hmm. is. Like I can go around the world and. You know, it's that, you know, how many degrees of freedom do you have to go before (laughs) you know someone that knows someone? And so I think that's, but that's also a great thing, even that we're starting to see of, you know, just a positive impact of COVID is we're all still connecting internationally. Uh, We haven't had to get on planes to be able to do that. But because we're an industry that likes to connect, uh, we found a way to do it. Mm, That's so cool. It's been really interesting watching the industry adapt to this uh, lack of travel because, yeah, we do. We travel a lot, whether it be into the regions or interstate or overseas. Um, It's really cool to watch industry adapt to these hybrid virtual in-person events now. It's really, really cool. You wear 
a lot of hats like so many women in business and in agriculture specifically do. Do you want to share some of the other hats that you wear, other things that you're involved with around the place? Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, like I like being involved with Giwa. Mm. So uh, and exciting for me, I've just decided to put my hand up to be the deputy chair of Giwa. So I'm really looking forward to yeah. being more actively involved in the strategic direction of where Giwa goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also a director of Bali Australia. Mm-hmm. And that is a great organisation to be involved in because it's very much supply chain driven. Mm. Uh, and because barley is such, you know, a prominent crop for intergrain, yeah. it's important to really connect with the molsters and the brewers and, you know, the grain accumulators. And I'm also on the Wheat Council chair, uh, the Wheat Council uh, for uh, Wheat Quality Australia. Uh, which is a similar type of role to the Bali Australia role, you know, connecting with all of mm. all of the industry there. Uh, a couple of other probably less known ones, um, actually on the advisory board of the Institute of Agriculture at UWA. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's probably a few others that I have forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of hats. And you're a mum as well. Which I is am. One one. Yeah. Yeah. Could you maybe share some lessons you've learned along the way as a woman moving through um, industry throughout your career? What are, what have yeah? What are some things you've learned that you think have really served you now? It's probably two things uh, that I think have had a major impact on my ability to succeed. So one of those, as I said before, is the attitude. Mm. It's like. Just if if you want to uh, achieve something or get to an end game, there are so many different routes that you can get to it. So never let the no um, be the end of where it ends, mm. essentially. So, and sometimes it takes a long time to mm. get what you want. And I'll go back to the endpoint royalty uh, situation. So that probably took me about five years to achieve some of the things, particularly establishing the national collection framework that we have today yeah there were a lot of people who didn't buy into the vision for a long time and so you just had to find a different way to pitch it to them or Mm -hmm. or things like that the other thing that has probably had a big impact has been my family situation and so my husband has spoiled me in so many ways in that we decided Mm -hmm. that uh, when we were going to have a family we were going to jointly share the child raising commitment that was involved. And mm-hmm. so at times, both of us have done periods of part time, yeah. but neither of us have had to step outside of our careers mm. for an extended period of time. And so we've never lost that professional development opportunity or career progression because of a time outside of our career. Mm. And but I, but I think that's also been a positive in that, you know, it's meant that our children have grown up and engaged mm-hmm. with both parents being a primary caregiver, plus both parents also being, you know, the primary career people. Yeah, that's so beautiful and probably not something that happens regularly. Is that, is that something that um, at the time when you were making that decision, was it you know really out of the box was it kind of um something that people thought oh well why why would you do it this way did you come up against some different ideas in that sense probably not for me it wasn't so out of the box because my mum has always been uh actively involved 
not always in direct employment, but she's always been heavily involved in leadership positions mm-hmm. and community roles and things like that. Uh, including, at, you know, for a long time, she was the mayor of Northam. So, yeah. you know, I actually got to see, well, for me, it was normal that yeah. uh, both uh, parents were actively involved, mm-hmm. uh, not just in, you know, I didn't have a mum who was just about, you know, looking after the kids. Mm. Yeah. Uh, another, uh, probably a big impacting one for me, which kind of summarised it all, was actually a book written by Annabelle Crabb. And so I would encourage everyone, male and female, to read this particular book. It's called The Wife Drought. Yeah. And, um, I mean, Annabelle does some great humorous pieces and it's, so it's an enjoyable read. But she's gone around the world looking at how different countries have approached uh, you know, bringing children and having uh, women maintain their careers. Mm. And there's a couple of bits in there which I still try to apply to my thinking today. And in my mind, one of the biggest issues that we have is we it's not yet normal mm. for the male to step out of his career and take on this active role. Mm. So it's great that we find lots of uh, supportive ways to help the female go into the career. Yeah. But we also have to find ways to make it completely comfortable that it's not unusual. Like I, I think my husband had a harder time of mm. it than me. And that I remember this one particular occasion where he took our firstborn uh, to the the you know the baby swimming classes and he came home and he said no one talks to me Mm. because I'm the only male there and you know all these ladies they're in their quite little tight-knit group and so there was this one opportunity where I had to go and do the swimming lessons I was accepted immediately Mm. and that really just hammered home to me that it was not normal what he was doing Mm. and so where I try to apply that to my life today is if I hear that uh, there is a person in our business whose you know, spouse, who's the, their wife is having a baby, mm. I make it a lesson to myself to go and say to them and speak to them and say, it would be great if you had the opportunity to go and spend some of the time mm. looking after the kids so that they know that that's actually acceptable in our business. Yeah, and an open conversation that you as a business are willing to have with your employees. Yeah. Yeah. That's so amazing. Um, let's shift focus a little bit now to some of the maybe really cool stuff that's happened for you, the awards and the accolades and the things that you have happened over your uh, career. You were Telstra Young uh, sorry, let me start that again. You were Telstra Young Businesswoman of the Year in WA. Yes. How old were you when that happened for you? Ooh, I, <clears throat> ooh, uh, I would have been 27, I think I was. Wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And what was that experience like? How did that uh, come about? It was, um, it was a fantastic experience. But in hindsight, looking back now, so I was actually the inaugural winner because this was the first time yeah. that they had won, they had um, the Young Businesswoman Award. And it was back in the days where basically I was having all of the success with the Top Crop program. Yeah. So that was exciting and I think it was, you know, quite unusual for an agricultural, <laughs> you know, person to do this. Yeah. But looking back, I don't think I completely maximised the use of that award. Yeah. And so um, being now involved with, you know, particularly the Rural Women's Awards and things like that, I'm really keen to make sure that if you do get an award, it's it's a nice 
but it's all, there's also an obligation for you to actually do something with that award. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the great things of like what the um, AgriFutures Rural Women's Award does. It mm. makes you go and do a project mm. and that is really beneficial. So, mm. yeah, don't just get an award, actually do something with yeah. it. And that's um, – so you were the recipient of uh, – in 2015 of what was then the RIRDC <laughs> Rural Woman of the Year Award in WA. Um, what That was around the Top Crop Program as well? No. So that was actually um, – so I was then in Intergrain, mm-hmm. so I had moved across into that part of my career. Uh, and the project that I chose was actually Oodles of Noodles. Mm-hmm. And so it was a fantastic opportunity where I kind of recognised that many people in the state of Western Australia, including growers uh, who grow udon noodles, have often never eaten <laughs> udon noodles. Yeah. And so it was actually about, you know, how do I raise the profile of this fantastic success story of mm. the, the udon noodle industry in, in WA? And, you know, it's still not a job that's complete. Mm. It's a story that I love to tell. And, you know, it's an amazing story because wheat is generally tra- traded as a commodity mm. where, you know, we are price takers. Yeah. So to have basically found a market value-adding differentiation in wheat, there's not very many cases of that internationally around the globe. Mm. So, you know, Western Australia should really be proud of, of its um, udon noodle industry. Mm. To throw you on the spot, for anyone that's unfamiliar with um, the noodle wheat industry, like how big is udon noodles for WA? So udon noodles, the blend that we send to Japan and Korea, mm. generally requires about a million tonnes of grain. Uh, and depending on the price, that ranges from about $250 million to $350 million per annum mm. coming back into our industry. It's huge, really, really huge. And I think there's some crazy statistic that if you go and have udon noodles over in Southeast Asia, that it's there's like a nearly 80% chance that those udon noodles are made from West Australian wheat. Completely correct. Yep. So incredible. Uh, you've been a passionate woman in agriculture your entire career. To, to touch on, I guess, the gendered side of things, what what's your experience been like as a woman forging a career in what has been a traditionally male-dominated uh, industry? I People often ask me this question and I often struggle with it because, and they'll shape it of the question of, you know, what's it like with the glass ceiling and mm. things and I've never experienced it. Yeah. In fact, I actually think I've... Uh, turned it and used it as an opportunity because there are so few females in some of the mm-hmm. things that I am involved in. It actually means that you can you are seen, mm. like you can shine really easily. And so, uh, for me, yeah, I mean, there's the the occasional crazy story where mm. you know you've rocked up to a big. Uh, quite official meeting and I remember this one particular case where that you know the person said oh are you here to take the minutes and I'm like no I'm actually the person sharing the meeting <laughs> but, yeah but that you know yeah. that just happens I've never let it really bother me yes. um we all make uh you know profiling mistakes yes. <laughs> at times in our life so yeah yeah I mean for me it's in a lot of ways, yeah, it's about maximising the opportunity that you've been given. Yeah, I really admire that that approach to, to that and I think it's something that um, 
I see a lot of young women ascribing to now is that the opportunities are out there if you just want to go after them. What advice would you give to a young woman right at the start of her career journey in agriculture? Someone, say, just leaving university, um, Tress, just before she's about to finish or never finish her PhD. (laughs) So for me, um, it actually starts at the point where you've decided that you're interested in going into agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so it could start earlier than university. So for instance, at Murdoch, I'm actually currently mentoring a a student who is in a second year of, uh, I think he's doing biology at Murdoch University. So for me, it's about industry immersion. Mm -hmm. So our industry is quite small. So find someone, buddy up to them. As soon as you say that you're got any interest in in this business you know we will take you under our wings because we just love people that want to come into our industry yeah go up go to industry events there are many free ones Mm -hmm. so uh my other advice is sign up to twitter that is how our industry connects i know there's all these other social media platforms but for some strange reason our grains industry has picked twitter yeah (laughs) (laughs) and you know and just connect to people yeah um you don't even have to be courageous enough to make your own tweets and stuff but you can actually see what's going on in the industry yeah um and then the other is is yeah do the classic things like go and do work experience. Um, for me, work experience is often about you will utilise it to find out what jobs you don't want to do. So, and that's not a bad thing. It's all yeah. about narrowing. Well, what is my area yeah. of interest? Yeah. yeah. That's such great advice. I, yeah, I think that finding out what you don't want to do is something we all need to do more of. We're taught from a very young age that we have to figure out what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I think it's far more important than we figure out what we don't enjoy really early on versus what we do. Yeah. Um, you have been a part of the Triple R Network for a little while as well. What, so why do you think it's important for women to be a part of organisations like Triple R? For me, it's about, again, it's that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I like about the Triple R Network is, you know, I'm quite connected just in the grains industry. Mm-hmm. and But for me, it's bigger than grains. Yeah. So it's being able to connect with the entire agricultural industry. And Triple R's also quite good at, you know, connecting and exposing you on a national level. So, and you can always learn some interesting things like, you know, how a station farm uh, is adjusting to setting up Wi-Fi across their property and things like that. Mm. They're all things that we can learn of, you know, which weather stations are they using, which is the best one, you know. So they're things that, you know, little snippets that you can then apply back to your own business. Mm, Beautiful. And what's next for you, Tress? We always like to sort of wrap it up with some blue sky, you know, big ideas. Have you got any cool things you're working on or do you have a career goal or maybe a personal goal that you're working towards? So personal goals are always easy. For me, it's always around some crazy uh, uh, event that I want to go (laughs) and compete in. So. So like uh, in a month's time, I'm actually going to go and compete in Dunsborough in the adventure race. And so, you know, I'm never fantastic at them. For me, it's just simply about completing what it is that I've signed up to do. And half the time, you know, in the run leg, I'll have to walk half of it and things like that. But 
so so yeah there's always some crazy thing that I'm going to go and do uh on a career goal up until recently and pre-covid I'd always thought that my next career would actually be overseas yeah. I, I've still got that travel bug in me and I've always wanted to go and have a um at least do you know two or three years overseas that's not a strong driver anymore <laughs> Mainly because I've really recognised just how awesome Australia is and particular Western Australia yeah. is. So that's made me really start to question, oh, where is, where is next? Yeah. But the reality is, is I just love my current job so much at Intergrain. Yeah. And the team that I get to work with is fantastic. And so together, you know, we're still got so many things that we want to achieve and yeah. deliver that, yeah, I don't have clarity on where is my next goal. But, you know, if you look back at the history of where I've been, I've never had clarity, but it's been an, a door has opened yeah. and I've gone, huh, Yeah, I'll go give that a try. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's probably, it won't be more driven by me. It'll be something that actually presents itself to me and yeah. that'll be my next target. Yeah, beautiful. And Tress... How can people find you? You're obviously on Twitter. Do you, yes. do you know your bio? Um, I think I'm simply um, Tress Wormsley. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll share all of those things. And do, um, any other ways people can get in contact with you if they're uh, Yep. So all my details are on the Intergrain website. Mm-hmm. It's probably the easiest way to find me. Yeah, great. Tress, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been so nice to chat to you. I've really enjoyed this and uh, I hope it hasn't been too scary for you on the mics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is my first podcast. <laughs> So, yeah, you it's did pretty well. comfortable. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for listening to the Triple R Network podcast by Generation Ag. Stay tuned for another episode in this series in a fortnight's time. Mm-hmm.